Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Welcome to another midweek Bible study. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If you've tuned in here, you're pretty likely to know that we're going through the New Testament in the order in which it was written. And here we are in Hebrews, one of my two favorite books from the New Testament. And you know what the other one is? Right, the Gospel of John. So what's going on here is we're right in the middle of comparing the Old Covenant to the New, the sacrifices that were made in the Old Covenant versus the sacrifice of Christ and the new, the priesthood of the old covenant compared to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. This book is being written to the Hebrews, hence the name, to bring them into the Christian fold. And the writer has an exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament and has an argument that is based very narrowly targeted toward the Hebrew people who have not yet understood that Jesus is the Christ or have rejected because they, they don't believe he's qualified or because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted, that, you know, a king that would overthrow Rome, let's say, and, and bring them back to the days of David. <clears throat> there were several reasons why this was hard to catch on with um, the Hebrew people, although, please remember, the majority of early Christians were Jews. But after a while, that low-hanging fruit, the ones that prepared and were ready, that's been taken. And now you've got to do the harder work of convincing the bulk of the people. It's made even harder by the fact that Jesus did not turn around and come right back with his angels, which a lot of people believe to the point where Paul was, if you remember when we went through Thessalonians, was having trouble with them because they weren't showing up at work. They weren't doing work because they were convinced Jesus was just coming right back. And every year that he doesn't come back, there are more people disappointed in that. Well, how much more these people who really did not expect for another generation to grow old and die, and the eyewitnesses die, and yet Jesus hasn't come back. You can't really overemphasize how difficult that was for these people. So the writer here is making the argument that that's not the way this works and that you know, this is our Messiah and he will come when he will come. But now we're still talking about, will you accept him? It's very much like on the day of Pentecost, whenever uh, the, the people ask Peter and the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, that's really what the writer of Hebrews is setting up right now. And the answer was, you had best bring Christ in as your Messiah, Lord and God. But here, let's start with verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, just as a brief aside, you are listening to this in April, 
if you were to go back to the end of February and the first two Sundays in April, you would hear lessons on hell and fire and universalism and conditionalism, uh, infernalism. You'd, you'd hear all of that and you'd get a better concept of what's being taught here. Fire and punishment, the words used here, are not for punishment as much as they are, well, as they, they're not for punishment, they're for refining, rehabilitating, cleansing a person of sin. You know, Paul talks about people being saved as through the fire. This is, um, we're not talking about eons and eons of agony and hell. We are talking about however long it takes for God to bring us to a realization of what we have done against God and against our fellow man, our fellow woman. So there should be a fearful expectation. If you decide to continue to sin, um, you've, you are rejecting, and remember what the sin was here, a rejecting of Jesus. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who was treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Please get the, these, this verbiage down. This is not talking about somebody who happens to worship different than you or who happens to like different things than you do. This is not talking about somebody who has, uh, they do something you would, you would disapprove of. Perhaps it's a they drink too much, or they go to the wrong movies, in your opinion, whatever it is. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who despise Christ, despise the blood that was shed, despise the concept that this is our Lord and our God. We're talking about people who absolutely are rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. If they keep on doing that, there is nothing coming next to save them. Now think about that. For a while in human history, we were saved by our ignorance, the scripture says. There was a while where we were saved by being under the authority of our family patriarch. There was another time in history, quite a long time, that we were under the Mosaic law. And as long as we did the sacrifices and we kept the Levitical law, the law in Deuteronomy, we, we were good, even though nobody kept it perfectly. And that's a big argument Paul makes in every one of his books almost. Um, still, you get the idea. That was the law. That's what you keep. Then comes John the Baptist before Jesus. So what happens now? Well, you can be baptized by John the Baptist. You can uh, declare him, therefore, your rabbi, looking for the coming Messiah. And then here comes Christ. So there were, there were something coming to help you, if, if, you know, to get you, get you. But there's nothing after Christ. There will be no other option. Stories told is probably untrue, but it, it illustrates a point that um, a man who, whose job was to count the eggs of eagles and other raptors. And to do that, you have to lower yourself over cliffs, and then you have to work your way inside clefts in a rock to count the eggs in a nest. And he had another guy working on another section of the cliff, and they could see each other, but not get to each other. And as a man was counting the eggs, the rope slipped and it swung way out over the very, very deep chasm. Then as it swings back, he immediately jumped and grabbed it. His friend later asked him, 
you didn't even think about it. You just let it go and the first time it came back, you jumped out and grabbed it. You, you didn't time your jump, you didn't plan it. And the man goes, each time it comes back, it'll be further away. I have to jump now. I have to get this now. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the rope's not coming back. Not as in Christ is not coming back. It's saying there won't be an option, a non-Christ option for you. So if you reject this Jesus, do not think that God's going to go ahead and give you your inheritance. Do you remember that very, very bizarre and dark parable that King James called the wicked husbandmen, basically sharecroppers, and they are working a man's land and their payment is to give a portion of the harvest to him. And he sends down a servant to go collect the portion. They kill the servant. Sends down another one, they kill them. He finally says, I'll send my son. They wouldn't dare touch my son. And the sharecroppers see the son coming and they say this really weird thing. Here comes the son. If we kill him, then we will inherit the land. Well, that's so incredibly stupid. That's not the way it works ever anywhere. Well, they killed the son and then the father comes in vengeance and kills the sharecroppers. That's what's being said here. If you reject Jesus, there's not another rope swinging back to save you. You have gone too far and you will not receive the inheritance except through fire, judgment. You have insulted God. Now, I listen to a podcast that does some history stuff, and I enjoy it. I will not give you the name of it. Um, the problem is that the people who run it are atheists and openly so. And every now and then, they say things about Christianity, which, which aren't funny and aren't true, and are very much trotting the Son of God underfoot. And it makes me hurt for them, because I think that these, these men, and they're all men, are probably nice people to their neighbors and nice people to each other, and yet they don't understand, you're going too far with this. You're pushing, you didn't push, push the envelope, you ripped it. And there's a consequence for this. The scripture says, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, look at that. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't push God and push God and push God without consequence, and especially when you've gone for his son. That does not go well. And again, these people, you know, we can try to, as, as Bible study groups have done forever, sit around and go, well, what does this mean to us? But we need to understand it was written to them and the purpose was to tell their own people, brothers and sisters, you've got to jump and grab this rope. There isn't another one coming. This is Christ, the Son of God. Do not miss this. Goes on, remember those earlier days after you had received the light. So some of these people were already Christians but were drifting back when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly ex and exposed to insult, persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted, this is a big one, 
joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So these people he's writing to, they know the story of Jesus and some of them have already suffered for Jesus. They've stood tall when the insults came, when their property was confiscated. Why would that happen? Because the Romans did that to unloyal citizens who are a threat to the peace and you could be put in that category entirely by just refusing to do prayers to the emperor and declare that the emperor was Lord and God. So they've already suffered and I can, I can get the point. I really can. Because even Paul expected Jesus to come right back. And here we are, we're suffering through it. Maybe we've lost a child or two. We've, we've been through illnesses that we cannot get medical treatment for. We've been knocked out of our house We've lost our job and we've been doing this for, I'm gonna pick a number here, 20 years, 30 years, and he's still not back. You can easily become weary in well-doing. And they had, I understand that. And that's why they had to get this, it's not a caution, it's really a, a, a big warning sign, blinking. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Well, it is a quotation most likely in Habakkuk is where we're going there. Here's the thing. Uh, have you ever noticed the armor of God story? You put on a whole armor of God and you've got the breastplate of righteousness. You, you know the story. There was one place, one piece of the armor missing. There's nothing to protect the back. The Romans often made their armor that way because the, to their mind, if you turned your back on the battle, you deserve to be killed. Well, the Paul used that illustration of the armor and he left off the back plate. Remember Jesus had told people when you put your hand to the plow, you're unfit if you turn back. You have to keep on going. Well here that's, he's saying the same. Don't give up. At my age, and my wife and I can sit around sometimes and worry about the state of the world that we're leaving for our our children and our grandchildren and I imagine some of you do the same but that should not make us weary and make us give up but rather move forward as you can tell our safe harbor was entirely new over the last two years and it has exploded in growth and it will continue to grow as long as you listen and as long as you spread the news and as long as you or as many of you as can support us financially we're going to keep doing this Lord willing because we're not going to stop until we meet Jesus. And the coming of the Lord, for most of us, is not going to involve something in the clouds. It's going to involve our death, age, disease, accident, somehow. And then we open our eyes and we see Jesus. And the Lord, we've, we've come to the Lord and he's come to us at that stage. So stay faithful till then, the scripture says many times, and I will give you the crown of life. But you gotta finish the race. If it's a 100 meter dash, we, nobody in the world cares how fast you can run 99 meters. You gotta keep moving, keep moving.
Now faith, um, here we are, chapter 11, ding, 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 one of the famous chapters in scripture. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, I like the NIV, I use the NIV extensively, but we did lose a little bit of the punch in that verse. The old version said faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I really think it was a better translation than this. This took some of the oomph out of it. I've had people talk to me about something and they'll say, you have to believe me. And the answer is no, I don't. I might if you supply evidence, but I don't have to. You know, I didn't do it. I, I didn't kill my husband. You, know, I, you have to believe me. No, that's not the way this works. I need some evidence. When Mormons knock on my door and they'll tell me, uh, I'll ask them, how do you know that the Book of Mormon is accurate and comes from God? And they will say, because they've been trained to say that they prayed about it as they asked me to pray about it too. And they felt a burning in their bosom that revealed to them that this was true. And you can make all kinds of jokes here, but you know, these, are, these are honest and sincere people standing there. And my response is, uh, burning in the bosom is not evidence because people who are Buddhist, Tao, uh, Hindu, Muslim, uh, people who are Jehovah's Witnesses, people who are um, evangelicals, fundamentalists, charismatics, Catholics, all of them pray and get burning in their bosoms, so feeling that warmth all over. And all of them are very much opposed to your book and you're opposed to all of them, so that's not evidence. Where's my evidence? And as you know, if you have followed our safe harbor over the last two years, we have done a lot of videos on Monday morning called Who Told You About or Who Told You That? And we trace things back and say, where is the evidence? And sometimes we don't find any. And so I talk about safely discarding that idea or doctrine. Sometimes we find something pretty solid and sometimes we find something very unexpected, which means that we should shift the way we think and believe and talk. We need to always be looking for the evidence. What does the evidence say? Paul in Romans chapter one said that the evidence is very clear by the universe, by the things that were made. We can know everything about God that can be known, he said, by the things that he made. Well, that's a huge sweeping statement, and I'm not sure any of us have really wrestled that to the ground in total. I have a lot more that I need to think about on that one. What does the evidence say? You know, there are a lot of times that I would have loved to have walked away from God, uh, and yet something from nothing, intelligence from unintelligence, matter and order from chaos and a vacuum, there's too much evidence that there is a God. And I would submit that there is way too much evidence that Jesus is his son for us to turn our backs on that. And again, you might want to look at the sermons later in April as, um, and really the first of May. Let's, we're going to start those in May that talk about why I believe the evidence is there that Jesus existed and that he is the Christ. All right, so look for that. We need substance, we need evidence, and there's nothing wrong with asking for it. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Boom, I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing, and it's, and it's true. The elements that blew up at the Big Bang 
uh, however you want to do it, whether God did it in six days or, or 60 billion years, don't care right now. Those elements and the way he made things ex nihilo, it, he made things out of things that do not appear. It's just, it's just a great little bit of scientific foreknowledge there. But I, I want to give you a little clue about this chapter, all right? Because we've, we've got another 10, 11 minutes, and I want you to see a pattern by faith, by faith, by faith. I want you to go through this chapter on your own or with your house church, with your study group, and I want you to make a mark where by faith, then look for what comes next. And you're gonna find that the majority of times, by faith, verb, by faith, verb. And something I ask people a lot whenever they talk to me about that they believe in God, and I'll say, where's your verb? By faith, what? I mean, by faith, we left out starting this, our safe harbor. And I mean, it was faith. Just using the phone I'm using right here on a tripod, like I'm using right here, in a man's basement on a stormy Wednesday night in November, that was by faith. Where's your verb? By faith, I feed the poor. By faith, I, I'm nice to people at work and show them love. All, that's all valid, by the way. I, I hope you understand that. By faith, I, I give my money to a work I support. By faith, I raise my children with kindness and love. Where is your verb? You know, some people can leave, you know, get mad and leave a church and nobody notice for six months. They, they, didn't, they didn't do anything. There's not a verb left hanging out there. They didn't leave a hole. Where's your verb? And this isn't a works-based salvation. It's a matter of, as James put it, showing that we really do have faith. We show that by the way we act, our verb. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. That just means his lesson continues for us. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. And that's in the book of Enoch, an apocryphal book that never made it to scripture, but is quoted several times and referred to several times in our scripture. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we believe that he is, that he exists and that he is good, that he will not forsake us. Please remember, Jesus quoted the first part of Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But read Psalm 22 and you find that by the end of the Psalm, he realizes he is not forsaken. It's a really important Psalm to know, Psalm 22. So without faith, it's impossible to please him. We have got to move out on faith. We do it all the time. I climb on airplanes by faith that the pilot and co-pilot know what they're doing by faith that the maintenance people did the right job, by faith that air traffic control will keep the corridor safe. I have no way of proving that except by the evidence of their track record. And that's enough evidence to launch my faith 30,000 feet in the air or wherever it is. Again, by faith, let's move. When you, we get married, we even say things could go really bad or things could go so sideways. So for better or worse, rich or poor, by faith we enter in, and it's a blessing. 
but you got to step in by faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about th things not yet seen, in holy fear, here's his verb, built an ark to save his family. This, by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I love the Noah story. God picked the world's worst carpenter, took a hundred years to build a box. I've had people that, and, and the world's worst preacher, because at the end of a hundred years of preaching, the only people that got in the box with him were his family that he started with. I've had people say, no, it took longer to bring the animals in. He didn't bring the animals. The scripture says God brought the animals. I had a feeling God saw his building and preaching skills and went, oh, okay, I'll take care of the animals. Noah was a fascinating fella, but in human terms was a complete failure, except for that surviving when everybody else died thing. Did pretty good there. By faith, he built an ark, 100 years. Now think about this. Why would, why would the writer of Hebrews bring this up? Because these people who had once come to believe in Christ and now were retreating because things had gotten really rough. And, and by the way, don't play that down. It was really rough. And as they were backing up, he, he's saying, you know, Noah built a box for 100 years before the first raindrop fell. How patient do you need to be that God's going to do what he's going to do? By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. Those are his, his verbs, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose, building, whose architect and builder is God. So in other words, don't focus on where you are, focus on where you're going to be and what you believe is there. So when I look at the world, the world wants you to focus very tightly on all of the terror, fire and horror of the world. No, we're focusing on where we're going and we're headed that direction and we're doing so in faith because we believe that a better world awaits us. So we, we walk that way. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was, in, was enabled to be, to be, that's the NIV version, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, as good as dead, how would you like to be described? You know that Patrick? Pretty old now, can't even make babies. He's as good as dead. Al came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore by faith. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. Did you catch that? The target here did. The people who were on the edge or had backed away. You know, the only reason you are a Jew and have the blessing of being one of God's chosen people is that Abraham didn't do what you are doing. He didn't quit. He kept moving, even though he never saw the promise while he lived. He kept moving. And that's a really important point. That's what the Hebrew writer is trying to drive in. If you back up, what if Abraham had? What if Noah had? What if Noah on the 93rd year said, you know something? It's not raining and I don't get it anymore and nobody's coming to church. So I, have, I think I'm just going to quit. These people didn't quit. And that's why you have the blessing. 
And so he's talking to these people saying, you cannot quit. They did not receive the thing promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And then they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. We moved an awful lot when I was a boy. My dad was a, a hard man, a lot of goodness in him, but he was a hard man and he struggled to get along with people. Um, and therefore I'd, I'd never really had a home, a home place. You know, I've decided long ago that Scotland's my home because, and I could have picked other places because we've been everywhere it seems, but I can remember my dad telling me, if you marry an American girl or if you marry any, you will never be at home. Well, that one of you will never be at home. Well, yeah, but you know something? I'm okay. I don't feel at home on this planet anyway. You know, um, I think sometimes we used to sing a lot of songs about that. And I can't feel at home on this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know, I've got no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? And we used to sing songs like that about, I see Beulah land over there. I see I'm headed to, I, here I am, a, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. And we lost a lot of that when we went to songs that had less spiritual depth, but a lot more praise in them. By the way, I think there's a lot of room for that kind of song, but I do believe we need to mix it with some more theological depth to remind ourselves, yes, the Lord is blessing us. Yes, the Lord is loving us, but no, we are not done moving forward yet. We have another land to go to. People who say such things that we are strangers and aliens, show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. You know, they, Moses could have said, right, this is kind of hot and dusty. We're going back to, to, to Egypt. What if he had? What if Abraham had quit? What if Noah had quit? Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, when I was a boy, this verse was misused. They would say, now you need to go out there and behave in such a way that God's not ashamed of you. That's not the way this works. The people of Israel knew that they had failed God repeatedly and that you can go to Acts 7 and see the sermon of Stephen and he, he encapsulates it in that chapter. This failure, that failure, this failure, that failure. And yet, because they kept getting up and moving toward God, God wasn't ashamed to say, these are my people, my bride, I love these people, even though to the rest of the world, they look like a small, ratty, leftover group. To God, they were his bride, lustrous, beautiful in every way. Like in Ephesians, whenever um, it says that God made the church without spot, spring, wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. God's not ashamed even of all of our failures because he knows we're getting up and moving forward again. We're stepping back up. It's just amazing. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. His reputation isn't hurt that he associates with us because he loves us and he knows we're trying. Now, see, that's a lot better than the old guilt and shame way of using this verse. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac. See the verb? He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. 
NIV is playing a little bit with the language there, but um, it is a fact that we do not have any early record that says Abraham took him up because he knew God's just going to raise him right back from the dead and it'll be, it'll be fine. This is later on Jewish people thinking about the story and deciding this is the only possible reason Abraham went through with this. So it's a pretty good guess. Uh, and I, have, I would not be surprised at all if it was correct. But I do wish it had been talked about earlier. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their, their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of, of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. In other words, he was old. They weren't where they were supposed to be yet. He can't even stand up now, but leans on his staff, but he's still worshiping Hebrews. Keep on going. I'll close right now, even though I don't want to. We're right in the middle of a great place here. Um, I'll close with a, um, just a little story about um, Harry Lauder. Harry Lauder was a Scottish comedian and singer who I think you had to have the taste to like him. And this is back during the turn of the last century, around the 1900s, that he was popular. And, and a lot of times his songs were more way fake Scottish than they were, were traditional real Scottish songs. And um, he was an embarrassment to some of his people. But to other people, he was a super popular music hall performer. And Harry Lauder lost a son who was not a popular officer in World War I, um, was evidently an incredible jerk of an officer. But he lost his son and people all over Britain, had their families have been wiped out by World War I. Americans have no concept of what percentage of the young male pop population died of Britain. You can go into the smallest crossroads in the little villages and there'll be a plinth with 20, 50, 100 names, young men who didn't come home. And you look around and there are not 100 people in the village now. It, it just was awful. And he sang a song uh, in the music hall that was a serious one. And it was, keep right on to the end of the road. Keep right on to the end. And when you realize what had gone on in his life and what he had lost, the song becomes very, very poignant and the comedian becomes a person that brings you to tears. We need to keep right on to the end of the road. We're not done yet because we're still breathing. Let's walk. See you next week.